So my view today with Darren Doherty from Regrarians. Bit of a change of pace to what we usually speak about in uh, strength, but along with lines of the theme of sovereignty, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of ground to, to cover here. So Darren is a true world leader uh, in sovereignty when it comes to food, uh, food security and understanding soil, soil science and topsoil. And, and these are things that we have to really consider if we're going to be sovereign, if we're going to be able to choose our own future, then we need to consider what's going on on the land and, and how to do do the best by that. So uh, I'll let you tell a little bit more, you know, and it'll become clearer as we go, Darren, like what you're, what you're all about as far as the land goes. But I'd, I'd love you to touch on that topic of like why, you know, why soil is relevant, why, you know, you're, you're giving a big part of your life to, to improving it. Well, my journey um, post leaving our own farm as a young fella um, went straight into food. So I worked um, in the uh, hospitality sector, um, both front and back of house. And in doing so, especially when I was working, well, in both cases, but particularly when I was working front of house, I found myself a representative of the food. And I had this amazing job in Tasmania. Um, at a place called um, the Launceston International Hotel, which was founded by a guy called Robert Hoskin. And this was 1988, 89. Yeah, 88, 89. And he was a local fellow who went away. And I don't think he was very well educated, but he got wealthy and he got money. And it was a classic sort of late 80s. He was a small town Christopher Scase, you might say. Yeah, right. <laughs> and um, he... He got $40 million together, which was a lot of money. It's a lot of money now. It was a lot of money back then. And he had this dream of building this international hotel in Launceston of all places. So he did. And it was this beautiful place and it was well fit out. It was marble. I mean, it was as good as anything you'd find um, or as good a new build as you'd find anywhere in the world. And um, he hired a young executive chef who at the time was only 28 and I think he was the youngest executive chef in Australia of an international hotel, Brett Hansen. And he also hired a, um, a, a waiter from Europe who he'd met in Europe, this Czech guy called Mark Del Bray. Yep. And one of the things that we... We had six weeks of training before we actually opened the hotel. And my job in that hotel was working as what's called a chef de rang. So I cooked at the tables... And so uh, 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 a trolley would be whirled. It was like this, it was like the most ostentatious barbecue that you've ever seen. It had a beautiful pans and it had alcohol and plates and cloches, which you went voila with. And it was, a, it was completely over the top and it was theatre. Yep. A big part about it was that I, in my, uh, when we weren't doing service, we were connecting with the kitchen and we were connecting with the farmers. And at that stage up to then, like I grew up on a farm where most farmers, what they do is they produce something and then they sell it. And then they're, they're, not, in any, they're not in any contact with the end consumer. Yep. In this arrangement, we had the best produce and very innovative produce coming through this, through this uh, door and we were meeting the farmers and then going and telling the story directly and cooking the food and doing, we had this very direct experience. And so 
all of that came together for me then to sort of go, ah, okay. I did. I never really got, well, I'd always got the food connection with the farm because we always killed our own animals and we always grew our own food and everything, but I never really got it. And, you know, especially once I got into contact down there with organic farmers who's, who's um, you know, when you talk to them, you talked about their soil, right? Yeah. And we're in northwest Tasmania, which is uh, sorry, north well, central central northern Tasmania, which is mostly volcanic soils, um, and you know, it's a humid environment. People are very excited about their soils, and they like to say my soils is better than that guy's down the road, and so on and so forth. So we had we had that big dynamic, and then after that, um, I did a few other hospitality jobs, and then I took over the manager role of of the organic greengrocer in okay. Bendigo, which I did for three years. And I met my wife there um, as a, she was a customer. Yep. Uh, and uh, <laughs> we've been married or we've been together for nearly 30 years. And um, uh, thank you. And um, I've and uh, married yeah. for 27. Yeah. And, um, but we, um, what we did there was I took that to a whole new level because in there I was a buyer and a seller. And I was engaged with the best um, and the leading organic farmers in Victoria at the time. And so, again, it was this big connection and the big thing. And so what really happened there, which is getting to your question, just I just wanted to give you some context. Yeah. Getting to your question, it became very clear when you look at the shelf life and the flavour and the um, and the aha from a customer who comes back and say, "Gee, that apple from that grower," and you go and you've got ten apples there, and they're you know, and they're from different growers. What made it so that that apple came that came from that grower gave gave that customer such a a, a, a vibrant experience that they would come back and say, "Hey, where'd you get that bloody apple from?" Because that was that was out of this world. Yeah, and then you would go to the farm and you'd see their soil and you'd see the way they treat things and, you know, all of that. And so that's where it really came to be. And then, of course, after that, I became a, um, a farm planner and uh, a farm consultant, which is what I do now, or a land planner. And that's opened up a whole other gamut of thousands and thousands and thousands of people that we work with, literally, around the world and looking at their soils and saying, all right, well, let's understand that relationship between the biological integrity of your soil, the mineral um, balance of that soil, and the way it behaves, its physicality, as to ultimately how the food performs and how the farm performs. And really, when you take that to its natural extension, which is the health of humans, yep. um, there's obviously, uh, you know, it's the same with us. We need to have an intact biology, whether it's in, within our microbiome yep. and is external and internal, and we need to eat mal, uh, minerally balanced food and we need to eat the right proportions of different foods. And it's really, you know, the soil is really, I see it as an extension of our own requirements and which when, you know, people who are listening to this might go, okay, well, I've never really understood the soil and how to play. It's If you understand your own health, well, then by extension, you really yeah. it's, you really understand the soil's health as well. That's a great, that's a great way to look at it. Like, I think everyone's talking about microbiome and gut health and, and sort of speaking about, you know, how to balance the body and, and looking at 
you know, blood testing and all these markers and things to, to measure how healthy the gut is, but how, how good the blood is. What if that was, you know, applicable from, you know, to any living creature? I think that drawing those parallels, like I do it a lot with animals and animal husbandry and zoos yep. and pets and those kind of things to try and get people thinking about health. Like what if your vet did this or would you feed a monkey that, you know, and, and would you feed your racehorse this? And it gets people thinking like, well, why am I eating stuff that I would never ever give to, you know, a, a prized monkey or a racehorse or, but taking that down to the soil level of like, well, if, you know, if that soil's been poisoned and it's, you know, it's, it hasn't got life in it, then how could it possibly, you know, be, be a balanced thing that's going to create the best flavours? It's interesting when you say that I was thinking about, I was working with, in Virginia a few years ago and um, a friend of mine, David Atwell over there, he, he, he a very interesting cat and uh, one of the things that he did was um, he would install beehives on people's properties yeah. and his sinister very calculated move to shift them to regenerative agriculture because what <laughs> happened was they kill the bees yeah. and fortified so you just put this in perspective before that time they would have a farm manager or they'd have or they'd be farmers themselves and they'd be practicing what they practice which is what everyone does you know the, the authenticity and they wouldn't get any clues that things weren't going as they as they were. They had no canary, if you were, if you were, yeah. yeah. Because canaries are people that they don't know, right? Because they're producing a product which then yeah. goes into food chain, no direct relationship, no direct feedback. Um, and so David came up with this concept of installing beehives on people. Go, oh, yeah, that's great. I'll give you some honey. Yeah, that's a good deal. Everyone likes honey. Puts them in there. And then they go, hey, I've noticed all the bees are not there. And he goes, yeah, well, maybe that's because you've been spraying or maybe that's because you've been using too much fertiliser, which has stopped all the flowers growing. And, and on it goes. And then that provided a conversation that then led people to understand uh, and change practice. Yeah. So you know, I think, and you would know this in your work, that everyone needs a disturbance or everyone needs, you know, people don't generally wake up one day and say, hey, mate, uh, hey, Keegan, I, um, I've, I need to be like you all of a sudden. There's something that usually disturbs them to get to that point and it's no different in agriculture. And, uh, and then when we look at, what we have to do, what we have to do with the environment is very similar to what we have to do with ourselves. We have to encourage it. We have to, we have to disturb it. You know, you, you don't get muscle strength without doing, without doing some disturbance to your body. You know, there's all of that is exactly the same in ecology and we have to nourish it and love it. Yeah. So it's not like, you know, it's interesting. So you, you can't just leave nature to do its thing and expect the best either. Well, yes and no, and that's a. Um, it leads me to in uh, well, Alan Savory, who's a yep. mentor of mine, um, and he invented a thing called holistic management, which is a, a whole methodology in agriculture and and in business. Um, anyway, he he came up with the, what's called the Savory brittleness scale. Yeah, this and this is probably important for a few of your listeners to understand that because a lot of them would go. Or a lot of them would hear that it's best to let nature just leave it alone, right? 
Now, if you look at the bushfires, for example, that's a, a good example of where in a lot of cases it's been left alone. There hasn't been the disturbance, right? Yeah. And so in the brittleness scale, as a landscape gets less humid, right, and as rainfall becomes more seasonal, then when you leave that landscape alone, it becomes more desertified, right? So on a lot of Australia, especially once you get inland of the divide, is classified as a st in a state of brittleness. Conversely, a non-brittle landscape is where if you leave it do nothing and just leave it to its own resources, then biodiversity will increase, biomass will increase, right? And uh, soils will be covered and all of that. And if that happens in a place like Australia in a lot of cases, well, you don't have the disturbance which encourages the, um, the turnover of all of that biology in, back into the soil, um, then you get conflagrations of the sort that, uh, that we had from September more or less through to February this, this past year, uh, year and a bit. So it's important to understand that if you just leave things alone and the body's the same, if you just sit on the couch, yeah. right, <laughs> as a lot of people are doing now, they've become addicted to Netflix and... Uh, you know, from the COVID thing. And, yeah. and then other people have been stimulated by all of this to go, hey, I'm at home, I'm getting bored. Gee, maybe I'll do some exercise. Maybe I'll walk more than I used to. Maybe I'll do some stretches, some yoga. I'll do something. I think a lot of people uh, put uh, put some veggie patches in as well around the place. I don't know if you've seen patches. that. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of... And that's that's a function of the disturbance of the uh, current crisis, which yeah. I was talking to someone the other day say that uh, the symbol... In, uh, in Japanese for crisis is the same as the symbol for opportunity. Yeah. So uh, one, when one looks at it in that way, um, it, uh, it's obvious. And it's exactly the same for, for landscapes. I'd love to touch on that because you, you've built this global community of people who want to, you know, you've gone from that position of understanding that food, the way the soil is looked after influences fine dining. I didn't know that about your history. And so that, that's a super interesting thing to to learn about today and I think people should reflect on is it going to taste better you know coming from that good soils versus you know uh, modern farming methods is it going to last longer too what's the shelf life <laughs> yeah yeah and I mean they they artificially play with the shelf life I guess in the in the big chain supermarkets and, and that's a whole other you know conversation yep. that is you know can your health be optimally nourished and supported from foods that have been in refrigerated and waxed and, yeah, yeah. and that's a whole different rabbit hole but like this opportunity that we have right now if you look at opportunity in crisis like i see this as well like if there was no welfare right now what would everybody be doing is is kind of an interesting question to to pose and it may be one that is actually posed as the welfare maybe isn't as valuable in a few months from now or maybe the economic ramifications of this aren't necessarily being felt yet what is the opportunity right now in regenerative farming, um, soils, food production? Because I think that's what people are going to look at at some stage if the welfare is not there, like, because people are going to want to eat. You know, people are going to want to eat. Um, look, I think that, and we saw this early on with the panic buying, which is, I, as, I can, as, as far as I can tell, um, has subsided to, to an extent, especially as, as you said, the, uh, the welfare um, has got in. I don't know. There'll be always some people who miss out, but uh, you know, you go into a supermarket now, and there's usually toilet paper. 
Um, you know, there's usually tins of tomatoes and there's usually pasta, you know, the sort of things that uh, people... Now, I, pe people weren't necessarily... Uh, and this was an interesting observation that I made um, early on. I didn't have a problem getting any of the stuff that, was em that had been emptied in the shelves at the supermarket when I went to the organic shops. Yeah. So, you know, people weren't, people weren't going, oh, I better go to, you know... Oh, they run out here. There's this other option. There's this other food chain that's here, another industry. So I don't know that this will be a stimulus necessarily to people eating a more uh, uh, foods from a more regenerative source, um, or organic source, ecological source, whatever you want to call it. Um, what it may well do, which you which you alluded to before, is if they're stuck at home. So if we if if we have that kind of restriction continue, or if um, which is another thing, if, which you mentioned, if the welfare dries up or if people have not been eligible for welfare or whatnot, then people will start to look at what can I do to feed myself because I haven't got money. Um, so maybe they might look at that and go, well, gee, I better get gardening. Um, maybe, I, um, maybe I better start buying bulk because it's cheaper. Um, maybe I... And, and often that then leads you to buying whole foods as opposed to processed foods and so on. Yeah. And people might start to learn how to cook again because, you know, one of the big things as someone who, who's worked in the hospitality industry and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good cook is that, um, is how bad, is, is how people just don't know how to cook. Yeah. And they don't know how to manage a kitchen and they don't know how to, um, like, They'll go and buy a. Uh, they'll buy very expensive cuts of meat, or a, they'll buy segments of chicken as opposed to a whole chicken. I mean, I can get three or four days out of a chicken. Yeah. Right. So even an expensive lala chicken that costs me twenty-five or thirty bucks, I can get six meals out of that, and more if I do the stock as well. So you know, it's not such an expensive chicken anymore. So. I would hope that, and this is an education thing, um, I would hope that, because a lot of people don't have access, well, I won't say they don't have access, they have access, but maybe they don't know the channels to gain that access on how to be a better home economist um, be a, and, and, be, uh, and use your kitchen as a real weapon for, dry, for A, driving up your nutrition and B, driving down the costs of food that you are otherwise um, expending in these in, in times which are difficult, and then connecting yourself to your yard or your garden or whatever it is, and your, and your locality. I mean, if you know plants, you can get around and you can... I mean, one of my friends, Adam, Adam Grubb, uh, years ago, he wrote a book called um, Edible, uh, Edible Weeds and, uh, and Wild Foraging or something like that. Anyway... There's so much that's around. If you know plants, yeah. there is so much around which you've probably sprayed or weeded out of your garden or whatever, which has so much more nutrition than anything you find in the supermarket. So, you know, building that knowledge, this is a real opportunity for a huge amount of knowledge gathering. Gathering and then the experiential knowledge that, that you go with. And as someone said, you know, what you know you will not forget. Right. So once you learn how to make a pancake, it's pretty hard to unlearn how to make a pancake. Yeah. Making bread is somewhat similar. Making a spanakopita 
you know, there's all of these things. Once you get that muscle memory, which then is rewarded by your gut and your, you know, your that matter, that taste gut connection and the feeling that you have sitting down with your family at a table and all of that sort of, or your loved ones at a table, friends, then that, that starts to build and off you go from there. There's a lot that you can do, but people are just going, well, make an effort. You've got to, you can't, you can't just wait for it to happen. You're going to have to get off your ass and get, and get to it. And I think it is a good time to look at those practical skills, cooking, you know, um, cultivating plants, but also, you know, which is probably more abstract in the, in the modern time and, and with a lot of the trends that are going on, but to be able to, you know, um, like animal husbandry and, and butchering, you know, I think that at some stage, you know, there are more and more people and in my network at least who are interested in experiencing that where they want to go hunting, you know, the Joe Rogan influence of people want to get out and bow hunt. Um, people, people want to experience what it's like to, you know, to harvest life. 97% of the population eat meat and yet probably, you know, two, three percent have actually experienced what, what that process actually feels like. Yeah. Um, especially my generation, you know, who, Growing up in cities, and you know, yep. your generation, there was a few more on the land. Or if I'm, if I can be as rude as to uh, make that distinction, I don't. I'm, not yeah. exactly how old right. <laughs> I'm uh, 52. You're right. I mean, but but that said, I mean, most of my mates who I went to school with that never killed a thing in their life. We killed something every week, yeah. whether it was picking a sheep or a cow. You know, we and yeah. we did it family, and we all shared in it. So, and we celebrated in it, and we appreciated, it and we were grateful for it. Yeah. I think that's a huge thing to, to come. I, I had a time there in Mexico, Darren, where uh, I, was, I was working with this organisation. The organisation was about autonomy and sovereignty and it was working with these you know, people, communities that felt as though they were getting the, the rough end of the stick from the Mexican government and the North American Free Trade Agreement and all this sort of stuff. And I was in the politics. I said, well, what about if we, you know, what about if we actually took control of food? Like I, I sort of felt that that was a great place to start if you wanted mm-hmm. to be rebellious autonomous you know make make yourself uh somewhat you know separate from the system and so one of the things that i could do was to get two rabbits and and i had two rabbits and i went and collected grass that was just growing wild in the vacant lots because we lived in we were staying in the city but i was picking grass from the vacant lots with a machete in a bag and i was just feeding them that that ended up becoming uh, 50 rabbits in the not too you know future and, and a little micro business in itself what what is going to happen or what could happen and how much land do you need that that kind of conversation of if someone is thinking about this of like what does it actually take and how much land does it do you need to be able to potentially support a family how could it start you know um, getting creative like if we were to fast forward you know six 12 months from now two years from now and say there is an economic downturn there's there's 30 40 percent unemployment there's not the welfare is not not cutting the mustard you're, yeah. you're the kind of man who I'd like to have a conversation with. So what, yeah. what if we jump ahead to that? Yeah, sure. Well, um, it depends on where you are. And I, I'd, make yeah. a couple, I'd make a couple of observations here. One is that the worst thing that people can do in these situations, because often, I mean, I remember, geez, it would have been 20-odd years ago, on the, I searched myself on the web once. And I, one of my first was on Alta Vista. I don't know if you're old enough to remember Alta Vista. Yeah. But anyway. But that was the Google of the time, right? It was Yahoo and Alta Vista. I did an Alta Vista search and my name came up on a survivalist website in the US as, as exactly what you just said. Yeah. Do you, I think that would be kind of useful. 
and I and I kind of pride myself as being that way. I'm I'm pretty useful. And but what I what's really important in this is for you know as much as that narrative um, is there, I think it's really important to put it into a community context. It's yeah. this. It's a sort of a for me, it's an extension of the self-sufficiency narrative, which is one that's outside of crisis usually. People do self-sufficiency by choice. Yeah. People do survivalism because it's survival, right? So um, I like to look at it and go, okay, well, if we're looking at survivalism or we're looking at self-sufficiency, don't just think that you're an island. That's the worst thing that you can do. The best thing that you can do is actually think that you, well, not just think, but be behave as if you're a part of a community yeah. and build social capital at any time and build the connections with different people because you will not be able to do everything, right? Um, well, I say that, but you won't have much of a life, right? And life yeah. is going to be really hard. It's going to be make, you're going to make life harder for yourself because you'll have the added anxiety of the paranoia that goes with all of that, yeah. right? and the isolationism and all of those sorts of things, which I don't think is spoken of enough. Yeah. So why I raise the point. So for, so when you, when you say, what can we do, how much area do we need, etc.? well, you've got to look at that within the context of where you are and what resources are available. You know, if crisis really hurts and we get to 30 40%, will wheat farmers still stop producing wheat? Will potato producers stop producing potatoes? Probably unlikely because people will still eat, right? So there'll still be a market. Will the supply chains be exactly the same? I can't say. Is it good for you to... So let's say that you want... Because humans ultimately need food, water, shelter, right? Well, you, can, you don't need a lot of water, right? Um, I know this, um, I lived on a property and I had a, uh, well, let's just put washing out of the, uh, to one side for a minute. But if we just look at potable water that we need, you need about eight litres per human per day, right? Now, you can reuse some of that water to wash yourself. So there's lots of things that you can do there. Yep. Um, but if we just look about the water that we need to cook with and ingest, that is quality, you only need about five to eight litres per human per day. And so when you look at that over, over a year, that's only a few thousand litres. It's not a lot. And so a five or 10,000 litre water tank on your, on your, at your house is one of the first things I would ever consider having yeah. because if, if, you know, and that's one of the concerns that's being spoken of right now. Let's say that we have some sort of blockade or can't pay China. All of our water, all of our water treatment plants stop having all of their treatment chemicals come because where are they made? Right? So first things I say to people is get a water tank and they're cheap as chips. You know, you can get one for a thousand bucks, two thousand bucks, and you've got five or ten thousand litres. There's your water taken care of. Even in a bad drought, you know, two hundred millimetres of rainfall is still 200 litres on every square metre, right? So you yeah. don't need a lot of surface area of roof to catch the amount of water that you and your family would need to, to live with. And we don't need to, you know, wash your hands and wash your ghoulies and you're safe, right? <laughs> the rest of your body, 
you can just leave to the to the biome that lives on you, right? So put park that to one side. When it comes to protein, rabbit is one of the natural ones. So rabbit is one of the highest proteins and lowest fats. And the biggest consumer of rabbit in the United States is the US military. Really? Because it's got such high, it, it's, it, because it's so high in protein and very low in fat. So it stores really well because the lack of fat um, oh. reduces it, the, the ability for it to go rancid. It's a very good dry meat, right? Oh, yeah. so, so we know that. And, um, it's a, and the smaller the animal, the more productive it is because it uses so the, the volume of food to the volume of animal that is produced, the volume of protein is produced. Yeah. Is is better the smaller the animal. And that and the smaller the animal, the faster they turn over too in terms of reproduction. Yeah. And uh, I'm not going to advocate we start eating rats and mice. Um, but some some people do, as you well know. Um, yeah. and yeah, they grow they cultivate them, right? Yeah. For food. Some people use uh, in, Yeah, yeah. In some people, European yeah. will typically go for the uh, for the little rabbits. So yeah. so definitely uh, rabbits are an excellent um, food because they, their production, their food conversion, and the space that they take up is really, really small. Um, so very valuable. You go up from that and then you start talking about goats and sheep. And when I was a kid, all of the railway lines all had house cows. You know, you, people didn't, people, if people had horses, they had them along the railway lines. They had them along the verges. They had milk cows. I, live, I grew up in Bendigo, which is a town of, I don't know, 100,000 people or so. And everyone, back in the 70s, there were cows everywhere, cows on a tether, goats on a tether, right? Ah. So that's not that long ago, no. right? And I would see that when you look around, there is so much vegetation that is going to waste that these days is being cut by council workers <laughs> contractors, right? Yeah, yeah. Which used that used to be part of the food supply because that nutrition went into an animal and that animal would but you know. So there's those sorts of things which I expect will cut make a comeback. When it comes to carbohydrates, carbohydrates, um, well of course you've got the different types, but when we, if we look at the starches, the starches at the most the the depending on where you live, the most efficient starches per square metre are potatoes and sweet potato. So with a relatively small amount of water and a relatively small amount of space and a relatively small amount of expertise, yeah. uh, you can grow a lot of starch in a very small amount of area, right? And, uh, well, if you're Irish like me, well, then everything has to have a potato with it So um, and butter. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so the start that kind of starch is one thing, but they they are more of a per perishable starch. When you're looking at cereals, cereals are a bit more difficult. But that said, um, you can grow a huge quanta of cereal in a very when you when you're in town, you can grow a higher yield of cereal than you can on a farm because you've got water, um, you've got act. Generally, you can, you know, it's a lot easier to manage a hundred square meters of cereal than it is a hundred hectares of cereal. Yeah. You can do it by hand and so on. And so you can get, so you can start to use that sort of uh, approach to being able to get that. And then there's the vegetables. 
And vegetables, look, if people want to start on a journey with vegetables, the best thing they can do is microgreens, but their microgreens depend on a lot of seed. And so, so that's a problem. Um, same as sprouts. So you, depend, you become dependent on seed. So the best thing you can start to grow are the really nutritious um, leafy greens, such as rocket, arugula, um, is a fantastic one. It grows all year round. It's functionally a weed. Um, and you can eat all parts of it. It's a, just a great plant. But then you progress up and you, you, know, you, you, you go online and look at what the diggers catalogue are selling. And, you know, so while we're in still okay, now's the term, time to learn these things because I can tell you, as we've already seen, there is a shortage of seed because already, um, as a result of the COVID-19 crisis, go, if you go and, like a lot of um, vegetable seed companies have got restrictions on how much you can buy. Go to Bunnings and try and buy seedlings. You can only go and buy one or two punnets of anything at a time, right? And, and this is when we're, you know, we've got job keeper, job seeker, job maker, whatever <laughs> other thing going on. So conditions are actually fairly good. But as, if, if, as you say, they're not, they're not going to be that good, well, that's, that's why now you need to go and plant some lettuces and guess what? Let them go to seed. Because yeah. if you let them go to seed, there's your seed. Yeah. And a lettuce produce, I don't know, it'll produce a 1,000 seeds, right? So at least. And they're e you know, it's, it's much easier to grow a lettuce to seed than it is to grow a lettuce. Yeah, 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 100%. Right? Yeah. So there's a lot of things that people can do. Type the space that's required, that's always a good one because it, it varies according to the climate and the soil and, um, and, uh, and your own skills yeah. and so on. But, look, I've, I've nourished our family off an area of about 30 square metres, so three by ten. Yeah. Um, if, if you stack everything together, go a lot closer. You know, if you plant onions next to, next to lettuces because then you start to stack things together and so on, there's a lot to be learned um, as far as that. That's part of this whole journey is, yeah. you know, leveraging the wonder of the internet because there's a, you know, there's, there's a bounty of resources and there's so many great people who are able to show you the way yeah. um, that offer very small area. If you have the relationships with others yeah. and if you're prepared to, you know, you're going to have to pre be prepared to devote a bit of your time because yeah. you may well have a bit. Um, to, to being your own producer, but do that in a community context. You know, you're not going to be able to, where's your olive oil going to come from? Um, you know, where are you, when that's a harder one, the lipids are a, hard, are, are a, diffic, a difficult one yeah. uh, unless, unless you start using animals. And rabbits don't give you any lipids. Kangaroos don't give you any lipids. Yeah. Pigs give you lipids, Yeah. right? So you, that's when you start to um, look at, gee, I might fatten that pig. Well, why do you fatten the pig? Because it's got lipids and then you can use those lipids for a whole variety of culinary purposes and so and preservation purposes as well. So, yeah, um, pigs don't need a lot of room. Chooks don't need a lot of room. Um, chooks in particular are really easy to grow um, and, uh, and, you know, you can get a dual, you can get dual purpose chickens but even if you get a, a like a, you can go for, to free range um, chicken farms, and because after after one or one and a half years, 
when the chicken egg production drops off, they sell them. Yeah. All right. And a lot of those go into chicken nuggets. A lot of, I know there's a factory in Melbourne which takes a lot of chicken and then that goes and processes and makes stock and different products which go to Africa. So, you know, you can, there's a ready value chain there to go and take chickens which have been on free range farms or whatever. And then they'll still produce an egg every other day, right? They'll still produce 150 eggs a year for you. And at the end of that, when they're four, five, six, well, you're not going to have their fillet. Um, You're going to stew them, right? And, of course, because of their age, they're going to be much more filled with minerals. um, And then you've got the stock and you've got all the rest of it and away you go. So, you know, I, I can't package into one little oh, that was epic. I think how to how to how to play this, but yeah. really you've got to look at your base needs. Yeah. And it starts with water, because that's yeah. the one thing you can't live without, right? Yeah. You can starve for a few days, but you can't starve yourself of water. And uh, you can't starve yourself of qual a quality of water. You know, we don't want to go down the pathway of getting gastroenterological diseases when you're unhealthy or when the world is unhealthy. That's not that's not the way we want to go. So really important to get your water sorted. Yeah. That does epic answer. There's so much there to, uh, you know. Get a bit of caustic soda too. That's always good because then you can make some soap and stay clean. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you've given people a lot to think about um, from, from that, Darren. And, I, you know, that's the, the goal, the aim of, of the podcast is to, encourage people to think and to consider, you know, what if, what if I had to do that? Maybe some people think that everything's going to be fine, everything's going to bounce back and, and they well, might follow this. I, I think similarly to you. I mean, I, I was raised by my grandparents because my father was killed when I was a baby and, um, and they grew up in the Depression, Yeah, in the Great Depression. So that was just the way we thought. Like it was always, it wasn't so much a scarcity mindset. It was just yeah. like, could this happen again? Yeah. And so you lived your life that way. Yeah. My, my grandparents were, were on a, a dairy farm. They had, you know, 100 plus acres at dairy and, and beef and they had pigs and chickens at different times and, and the cattle dogs and all, and all that sort of jazz. My dad, you know, milked the cows and, and didn't have shoes till he was 10 is the story and rode a horse to school and all that sort yep. of stuff. So that's, that's my father's generation. Like it's, you know, I grew up in the city and I'm that sort of city kid and I, I sort of wanted to go back to it. You know, that's why I reached out to you maybe, you know, 12, uh, 18 months ago to sort of try yep. and get things going better on my place. I got the goats and had the chickens and ducks and I had a, a massive experience with all that. And I want to go again, but I need to do it in a different way. And I think the biggest thing that I was missing, which I, I'd like to sort of finish on as the, the last point for today, uh, is around that, like, community. Like, what has it been like for you to bring together thousands of people around the world and my dream and, and, and a big part of the motivation for having you on today was... I'm connected to people who are passionate about health and physical performance. And I just don't think you can optimize health and physical performance without being connected to, to the land and to, to, to great food production. So. And um, to people. Exactly. And I think that, that that's what I'm trying to make the connection here between, you know, my people, the people that are you know, on this performance side of things and your people who love the land, they love food production. Well, they're on performance too. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think, um, look, yeah, go on. You know, I guess my, my question is sort of 
what what could be done like and and where is your community going you know how you know how's that evolved from you being this expert in in farming and, and in you know soil uh, topsoils and grass production and understanding the food connection to now having a community of thousands of people because not everybody makes that jump to coaching other people uh, through the process and that's that's what I'm intrigued to hear about you know how's that come about and where's where's that community headed how could we potentially you know synergize as well if, you, if you've got things yeah. already jump into mind well the first part of that is you know you've got to have the right tools and to be able to gather like I couldn't have done this 10 years ago. I probably couldn't have done it five years ago. So you need, like in our case, we needed the IT um, yeah. apparatus and the uh, the workplace by, by Facebook or workplace from Facebook um, platform. Um, for those of you listeners who don't know about that, or, um, or I think you use it as well with people, but for those who are listening, uh, Facebook developed this, what I would call, probably their genesis product that they never released in the first instance they went straight to being a social network whereas the real genesis of facebook was to be an intranet and a really effective interface for an intranet and the workplace platform that they developed is a intranet is a facebook um, interface based um, a platform for businesses it's an intranet for businesses and uh, so we, we uh, saw that, we were invited by them in 2016 to start using it and we, um, so we were one of the first users and uh, our membership has grown to a, a couple of thousand people around the world in about 50-odd countries. Um, it translates all of their, their, you know, you can speak in your native language, which is fantastic because then you can have these really lively, like the, the language divide. Which, of any, if you've ever travelled, which I know you have, um, then you know that's the one of the first divides. You just, you know, you know, you'd be great friends with these people, but you just can't bloody speak with each other. Yeah. You know, chemistry is chemistry between humans, but sometimes you can't, you can't get the alchemy completely without the uh, the language. So it deals with all of that. But the um, biggest thing, I suppose, that I look at with it is it gave us the tool to be able to, A, be liberated from having to have a, um, an absolute one-on-one -on -one relationship with every person, and B, it did that through self-determination. And because we are very, like before, we couldn't, I suppose, Allow is not the right word, but we couldn't allow people to self-determine as much as we could because we didn't have the apparatus to then connect them with others who knew better about something than we did. Yeah. Whereas now we do. We go. We just link someone in. It's all about linkages, and that's what IT is fantastic um, with, and that's what um, that's what uh, this this uh, workplace apparatus is great with. So so now instead of it it all coming onto me, which is often the problem with these things. It all becomes very apex. You know, there's an apex creature um, who is the know-it-all, be-it-all, etc. person at the top of this. And if they're not there, then the whole thing just falls, falls to shit. And that's not a way to, that's not the way this planet should function. I mean, if a tree falls in a forest, then the forest is not over, Right. But a lot of places, they structure themselves so that they're the one tree and if that falls over, then the whole place is dead. And we've cultivated something quite different. And I, 
I, I mentioned trees because we do um, we do uh, uh, think all of the time about how we can model ourselves after existing ecological models. And so we know, I mean, I use the analogy of a tree and a forest because I know how a forest works. And when I look at myself as, an, if I look at myself within that analogy, then I can tell very quickly that I've got, um, that I can, um, I can be a, a component of that forest, but if I disappear, then the forest won't fall over and the community won't fall over. So that's a really big thing that we've been able to generate through this, through this platform, which has been quite amazing. So we're, we're very happy and satisfied with that. And, um, and uh, in terms of synergies, well, that's, that's something that, I mean, we've, we've had a bit of a chat about that and, um, and I think that the apparatus of the workplace allows for people to do that. We, we allow people to be, uh, be on our workplace as a member for one month for free, which any of your listeners are welcome to do, and get a bit of an entree into our world, yep. um, which is, you might say, high on health, high on agriculture um, in terms and reasonably high on, on personal and professional development um and you might say look we're not we're not uh, we talk about physical health a bit but it's probably you know when you look at your your um the people who are on your thing um they're probably all about performance and they're about physical health and all of that sort of thing so it's quite different um or pe people's um interests are quite different but i think that's where these synergies and that's why you've invited me to talk with you is that what you're saying is that it's really important that people, if they're going to, to be as optimal as they can, then it's really good to connect with your food system. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm super excited to, you know, that as people go along this journey and they, they respect themselves a, a little bit more and they, they want to live, you know, to more of their potential, then they, they do want to become healthier. They start to you know think about when they go to sleep and, and with the quality of the water that they're drinking and then, you know, the physical cultivation and then, also, you know, also relationships that, that they're building. And I guess the, the thing that I saw, you know, I've been quite interested in permaculture and, and you know, Alan Savory's work and all that stuff on a theoretical level uh, for, you know, since the mid-2000s, I sort of started reading those books. And I guess I, I have a little bit, you know, I, I just sort of want to see how that can become more mainstream. And I think that has to be, demand driven consumer driven so like that, yeah. that connection of if, if we could have more consumer demand to these people who are wanting to produce more or, or or driving you know making that a clearer path like one of our members who just you know rejoined with us he lives on a farm at the moment he he, he gave up city living and he's a he's a kind of a farm hand and yep. you know like that's the path that he's chosen to you know he goes he trains and he eats good food and, and he's decided to, to live that life on the land, I think they're going to be more people who decide they, they want to do that to some degree, whether they have a gym on that rural location and they run retreats from it as well as have the food production there. Like it's, it's sort of that $40 million dream without the marble. Um, but, you know, that's actually saying that is pretty accessible for people to do if they had the, the desire and the willpower and the labour and just a little bit of community around those places, they can become something that's really valuable for people in yep. Melbourne to go out to, you know, and visit on the weekends and that sort of thing. And, and people in Melbourne are, are loving those experiences. You know, you can see the farm at uh, Byron Bay is a great example of 
people want to go and see food again and they want to, you know, they want to feel some connection to it. And, and that's just, you know, that's where I, I see something great happening. I don't know exactly what all the, the details are, but there is a lot of willpower and a lot of uh, positive energy in our community towards supporting that kind of farming to having their, their members. If every coach on average has 20 or 30 clients, then there's some buying power there. There's some, some possibility there. Absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's what a lot of people are doing. Um, you know, yeah. if you're, and that's what a lot of farmers, and this is where we need better support because again, it's, it's difficult to be a farmer and a marketer and manage your logistics and manage your marketing and all of those sorts of things and, and be a producer all at once. 100%. And that's, that's where some people are starting to, particularly through the use of IT, are starting to, um, are starting to galvanise together. Which is which is fantastic. So we'd love to see more of that. And but it, but it, you're right. It does take a market. And so it'd be really helpful if people listening said, "Hey, well, you know, even in, on your network, you know, if there's ten people in Brisbane or whatever, and say, hey, I'd really, you know, none of you can buy a cow by yourselves, but ten people can buy a cow. Yeah. And if you went to a if you went to a farmer and said, hey, I want to buy one of your cows, and I'll pay you. $13 a kilo for it, right, which is what you're paying for the cheapest cut of meat in mints, yep. right, that farmer's going to be as happy as Larry because he's not getting $13 a kilo. He's getting $4 a kilo. Yeah, well. If you start to pay the full retail, then that farmer's now got the money that allows them. And, of course, the conversation because you will say that because you're, you know, this is where the consumer has such a powerful voice is that they can, they can start to then suggest or require with subtlety different methods of, of production. You say, hey, can you stop drenching? Hey, can you stop? Can, can we do this? Can we help, right? Yeah. There's different things that people can do if you've got a different uh, value proposition um, that's involved. So, yeah, there's, look, there's a huge amount of opportunities there. It just takes smart people working together well, not even necessarily smart people, just people working together yeah. to, um, to, to make a decision about doing things in a different way. Because yeah. if you're, I mean, it's the big thing. You, you, pay, you pay $10, $12, for cheap cuts of meat, yeah. right? That's nothing like what the farmer gets, yeah. right? So you start to have, you, you can get some really high quality stuff if you directly engage. Yeah, yeah. I think mean, that's you know you you know some of those people. Some of those people may listen to this if you if it's something that you share out. Where I know for myself, that's that's a dream come true. You know, and, and there are other people out there like me who do. You know, if that, if you can get great quality meat for thirteen dollars a kilo, like that's that's you know less than half price of what I'm you know paying on average for. Oh, that's you know, right. I mean, that's a, that's stuff. that's right, and that's the thing, and that's what I'm talking about when you're talking about economising. Yeah. People don't know because people don't know the industry and that's, that's okay. It's like the people don't know the supplements industry. People don't know. There's a whole lot of industries people don't know about. Yeah. They don't know that they can maybe make their own supplements. They don't even know what they're made of or what, where they've come from or, and, and, it's, and, and what, what, what markup there is from the raw product all the way through. So, you know, and it's no different in the food industry. So, 
Um, Food Connect in Brisbane is a great model of a company which is doing a really good job uh, um, um, as far as connecting farmers and consumers. And that's the sort of business we love to see because, like I said, it's difficult for people to, to do everything and it's difficult. Sometimes you need a, someone to help you in between, an aggregator of some description or whatever to, uh, to make it in between. But you don't need 10, aggreg- you don't need 10 people in between you yeah. and your food. One question to finish up on. One of my goals for June is to uh, own 10 head of something, goats, sheep, cattle. I don't know where they're going to be. I don't know if I'll ever see them or, or you know, end up consuming them. But it's one of my goals for the month to have, to have 10 head. So uh-huh. what is, what is a, how could I solve that without – obviously, I'm, uh, I'm in an Airbnb place. They're not going to come and stay here. <laughs> with 10. Um, how can I get that done? I don't care where in the world they are, to be honest. Oh, okay. But you want to consume them? You want to have a relax? Ideally, ideally, I'll you know, go and visit where it is and, and, and potentially consume them. If, if they're somewhere around this way, then that one of them could be in the near future um, together with you know, some of my friends in this area. We've got a big community, uh, Brisbane, Sunshine Coast, Gold Coast. It's probably about 60, 70 of us now, 80 maybe, um, coaches with all their, their crew. But, um, yeah, cool. Open, open to possibilities. Well, one of our um, an interesting model which comes to mind um, is one of our one of our colleagues, or actually a couple of colleagues um, who are on the work uh, the Regrarians workplace. Um, I'm trying to think of one of their names, but Brittany Cole, Cole Bush, um, she's in uh, in California. What she does, um, she runs goats and sheep, and she uh, she doesn't own any land. Um, and she has those animals, kind of like what we were talking about before, but she, she has those animals go and take, um, take care of the verges, the places where, like, she uh, will go. Like, let's say you've got a subdivision yep. and then you've got bush nearby. You've usually got some sort of peri-urban space in between, which is sort of shitty pasture. It might have been farm once before. It's been converted into suburbia and then you've got that interface. Those areas in California are really, really problematic from a bushfire perspective. And so Brittany goes in there with her with her sheep, which in a lot of cases are owned by multiple owners, yep. and goes there and performs a service and gets paid by the community to do that. Yep. Just like we pay the community for through our council rates or whatever yep. for for people to go through and um, use tractors with uh, with mowers and stuff to do the same thing. I looked, I looked at a guy with goats for that on our property. There was one yep. just a little bit outside of his range, but he had about 15 goats that he would bring, fence, and then move to, to clear property. I ended up getting my own goats, and he was a bit too far away. And then I had trouble with managing my, my, my goats. But, um, yeah, like I'm, I'd love to support that kind of business if there's someone out there who wants well, to. Well, sometimes it's not that kind of business. That's the thing. You've got to go and make it, and you've got to yep. make it scale it'll pay them and and yeah. make it a value proposition for the people who are investing into it and so on but you know in this era there is nothing stopping someone because you know there's these things called rf tags um radio frequency tags which you can jump onto an animal they're like a buck or two a piece yeah. and that then that then immediately identifies you as the owner of that animal so you could have a hundred owners of 200 200 goats right and you know, you go over it with the wand, 
with the RF reader and you know who's who's who, right? Yep. So, so there's nothing stopping you um, running that kind of model. It's just got to be of the kind of scale that's going to work because unless you are the you know, someone's got to take care of these animals. Exactly. You can't just let them maraud, otherwise you won't have them. So, yep. so you know, so having five or ten, like you said, yeah, well, you're going to have to take care of them. And I'm, I, I, don't, I don't gather that that's something that you want to do every day. So, and you may not be equipped, but you may well be able to do it. The other thing to do is to contact some farmers and see if you can get into a herd share arrangement. Yeah. So there's been a few schemes that have gone around where people have bought a cow or they've bought a sheep, that sort of thing. Someone might start something up. You know, you and your mates might, or your, your uh, people within your business might say, hey, let's, let's get 10 of us together and let's go and buy, let's go and, let's go and buy, uh, put it out there and we want to buy 10 cows off, off a farmer and let, those, let that farmer, almost as an advanced payment, continue to grow those animals, but they don't own them anymore. We own them. They run them. Yep. And, and at the end, when they're done, happy days, right? So you get access to the animals. So there's a whole range of arrangements. Again, it just comes down to creativity. People are just and, – and talking these things through. Yeah. But you should be able to do that. Yep. Yeah, sounds like a plan. Um, we're planning to head overseas. Just obviously, there's uh, uncertainty about air travel at the moment, and and yet yeah, again, difficult to uh, to bring in the onboard, or even in the uh, in the downstairs compartment. They're not too too keen on livestock. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I know that we're going to solve that problem somehow during during the month of of June. Whether it is a herd share, maybe someone wants to start that business and they need some startup capital to offer that service of you know. The verges and, and smaller the- animals. I mean, a cow is a thousand dollar animal, yeah. a sheep, a uh, hundred to two hundred dollar animal. So, you know, you, you talk, um, cow, sheep and goats are much more efficient at food conversion, they produce more animals per year, like they they, you know, they can breed twice a year and so on, uh, yeah. you know, um, and they usually produce more than one progeny, whereas a cow. Is almost a is a, it's like a China growth policy. Um, it's it's one it's one cow every nine months, and uh, out of two cows, so yep. <laughs> it's hard to increase the population. Yeah, so. no, it makes makes a lot of sense. Um, I really appreciate your time, Darren, and, and I know there's a lot deeper that we could go about sure. you know, your work with cultivating grass and how important you know that that is for the quality of livestock and, and health and health of the land and, and your pioneering work um, with the, the key line system and water storage and all that stuff hopefully there's another time that we can dive deeper. Oh. you have got a number of podcasts out that cover that as well if people want to uh listen to your other podcasts probably learn more on the technical side of on, on the farming that you, you travel in the world and teach yeah uh, yeah or join us at the agrarians workplace and uh but otherwise agrarians.org um you yeah that's where we've got a link links to everything in our youtube channel and the usual social media outlets you made the polyface uh documentary yeah the polyface documentary well my wife and our eldest daughter made that yes yeah well that must have been an exciting project as well uh... yeah it was awesome um i think we went there about seven times or so and uh yeah well then we've become i mean one of the we're already good friends, but it's sort of enriched our friendship with the Salatin family, which uh, which which we treasure a lot. Hundred percent. Did you any what? Uh, how did you feel seeing the latest Joel Salatin, Joe Rogan podcast? Um, it was interesting. I, 
Uh, oh, interesting because Lisa and I watched it. My wife Lisa and I watched it, and then we watched the other podcast that Joel did in 2014, and um, we felt that they were very similar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't know if, um, well, I don't know if if it was well. Joel gave stock answers to stock questions, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. You've heard a lot of that stuff before, but I guess it's for me. It's exciting to see that on such a mainstream. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I mean, it's it's great, you know, and good on Joe Rogan for all the coverage that he's been able to generate. But um, and because uh, he's worked hard at it, no doubt. And um, yeah, but it, and it's great to have anybody who's in our space talking about the things that we should be talking about. Um, you know, too often we spend time talking about rubbish um, and, you know, like, like so, I can't remember who it was, but, you know, um, they said something like, you know, really smart people talk about ideas, not other people. Yeah. So, and too much of our time is spoken, is taken up talking about other people as opposed to ideas and good practices. Yeah, 100%. And I think this is, this is an idea, this is a concept, this is a, a discussion that, the world needs to be having a lot more of so I appreciate you making some time for, uh, for us today and uh, yeah look forward to, to working more closely together make sure you check out Regrets good on you mate well all the best to you and thanks for having us on thanks Derek thank you